0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So I don't know about the rest of you, but I certainly do love bread. Who's with me? Yeah, yeah we love bread. So as we continue our series, uh, uh, signs of life for this Easter season, this fourth Sunday of Easter, today we're going to talk about a satisfied life, and in particular, we're going to focus in on on bread. And so our communion service today will be uh, a bit more uh, fulfilling. Uh, hopefully a bit more satisfying than our normal uh, gluten-free uh, cracker that we love to crunch on uh, together. Uh, but don't fear, uh, those of you who are gluten-free, we do have an option for you. Um, unlike Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, all he had was barley loaves. But then again, that was Jesus, and so I'm sure he could take care of it. So, bread. Uh, as we heard from this, this is a Netflix series documentary, and um, As they said, bread kind of is this important part of civilization. So hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was a time in where humans were uh, mostly migrants, kind of on the move, kind of following um, the animals. They were hunters and gatherers. And eventually we came to the point where we could, you know, have flocks. But then if you have a flock and it's on the move and you have someone else who's starting to plant and kind of grow uh, fruits and vegetables, kind of grow some wheat or some oats or some barley, it's going to cause some conflict. There'll be conflict between those who need to follow the animals where they go and those who want to stay place and uh, kind of live there. And so that conflict, I think, is expressed pretty early on in the biblical narrative. Do you know a story between brothers where one grew stuff and one had animals? Do you know that story? It did not end well for the one who grew stuff, right? The one who followed the animals killed them. No. Did I get that right? (laughs) Forgive me. Uh, You know the story. (laughs) And if you don't, you should read it when you get home. Because it's a familiar story. And it's a story that if you can go to certain parts of the world today, uh, go to Tanzania... And you will find tribes that in the history of their people, uh, some followed flocks and some grew crops. And they've been in conflict kind of ever since. In fact, they're still in conflict uh, to this day. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is an interesting one. And it's one of the very few stories that is contained in all four Gospels. So, we get the crucifixion in all four Gospels, and we mostly get the resurrection in all four. I mean, Mark just barely hints at it at the very end. I mean, he could have said a little bit more. Um, Two women show up at the the tomb, and he's gone. But they all four tell us in detail the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I find that fascinating, because... In the ancient world, they were agrarians, and not unlike us today, while we might not be farmers ourselves, we do live off of the land. We are people of the land. We cannot be sustained without the land. We have to have uh, sustenance, and that sustenance comes from things like bread and water. So this story, though is more than just a story of a miracle, more of just a story of Jesus kind of providing for the basic needs of the people group. Something else is going on. In particular, in John's Gospel, it says, "When the time of the Passover had come, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's with his disciples, and this large crowd is following them, and he turns to one of his disciples and said, where are we going to buy enough bread for all these people? And his his disciples like, we we couldn't buy enough bread for all these people if we had six months' wages. What's interesting about this story is it says it's the time of the Passover. And they are in Galilee. So where might we suspect Jesus would have been as a good rabbi, as a good Jew, at the time of Passover? We would suspect that he might have gone to Jerusalem. The Passover is is a pilgrimage festival. There's this idea that we think that faithful Jews go to Jerusalem, go to the temple in the time of Passover. So, not all Jews, of course, could have done that. A lot of them couldn't have afforded to do it. Um, And Jesus, at least according to John 6, did not go that year. Like, we we know that, or we say we know, that Jesus' public ministry was three years long. But if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would guess his public ministry to be about a year, year and a half. Because they only tell us of one Passover, And that's the Passover where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he flips over the tables and uh, ends up getting arrested. And again, you know the rest of the story. He gets uh, tried, convicted, and executed. But in John's Gospel, we get the story of multiple Passovers. We get the story of the Passover in chapter 2, where Jesus does go and flip the tables. We get the story of the Passover here, and then there's another Passover that Jesus is at in John 13, and that's the story of the foot washing. So really, it's only because of John's gospel that we know Jesus' ministry was three years long. And we know that because that's the annual holiday. It only came once a year. It would be like, what did you do for uh, 4th of July? Well, this 4th of July, we spent it in Lakeland. Well, what did you do last 4th of July? Well, we spent it in New York. Well, in our day, you might spend the same day in Lakeland and New York, but in the ancient days, that would not have been the case. You could not have been both in Jerusalem and in Galilee on the same day. So here we have Jesus not making the trip to Jerusalem, but yet he's feeding this massive group of of people. And as he feeds them, they count them. Now, counting is an interesting uh, phenomenon in scripture. There aren't very many reasons why you would count, like take a census in the ancient world. One of them, of course, is for taxes. The government would count to see how many people we had and who all paid their taxes or not. We actually don't see the Jews doing that very often, although we do see the Romans doing that to the Jews. On the other hand, we do see the Hebrews, the Jews, counting quite often in the Old Testament. And it's normally for preparation for a military battle. How many do they have? Well, how many do we have? Right? If we have more than they have, that's good. Of course, there's some of those stories where they had a huge crowd and we had a small crowd. And we're like, that's not so good. Like, Come on, God. Maybe we don't want to go into this fight. So what's interesting is to say that they have 5,000. That is a large crowd of people. I mean, that's the size of an army. And it's interesting in John chapter 6, it's verse 15. Um, It's how the story ends, and it's only included in John. It says this When Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, what was their expectation? We would like to be delivered from the Romans, we would like to be set free. We would like some economic freedom, some military freedom, some political freedom. We need our God to send to us a deliverer, a Messiah. Now you have this popular rabbi roaming the uh, land of Galilee, teaching them things, and now he can feed them in mass multitude. Well, how many do we have? We have 5,000. Well, then we should go and by force make him king. It's time to march on Jerusalem. Triumphal entry 1.0. Except Jesus doesn't kind of do that type of kingdom. And so it says he kind of sneaks away at night. And his disciples are looking around. They're like, Jesus left. Well, let's get in the boat and see if we can find him. And so they go back across the sea. To Capernaum, where where they were living, kind of Jesus' headquarters, and they find Jesus there. And the next morning, everybody kind of gets up and they're like, Where's our king? Where's that rabbi that fed us? Where's the one that we were going to go and by force make him our king? And so they find their way to Capernaum, and there's Jesus, and he's teaching, and he's saying things. He's saying things like this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, What must we do uh, to perform the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? I guess something more than feeding them all from previous night. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of heaven is that which comes down from heaven and gives you life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus likes to speak and uh, riddles, apparently. What does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? What does it mean that he's come down from heaven? It kind of offended some of them. They're like, who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Like, what is he talking about, come down from heaven? I know where he's from. He's not from heaven. He's from Nazareth. Give me a break. What's this guy trying to say? Jesus later will say... You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. To which even the disciples were like, whoa. <laughs> you know, one of the accusations against the early Christians is that they were cannibals. Because people who didn't know that much about the tradition heard them talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Christ. And they're like, oh, those people are extremist. <laughs> All right. That's not what we do. It's actually it's in uh, John chapter six, verse sixty-six, which I think, while serendipitous, is extraordinarily apropos <laughs> that in John six 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 it says this and many of them are scandalized and can no longer follow him. And it's referring to disciples, not necessarily to the twelve, but Jesus' disciples, of course, numbered more than the twelve. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean to have a satisfied life? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean when we kind of take communion on a Sunday morning when we come to the table? I think one way to think of this is to think through it in terms of the texts that are referred to in John. The text referring back to the man in the wilderness. And the text then that Jesus will speak about when um, when he kind of teaches us to pray. So what's, what's interesting about the man in the wilderness is the man in the wilderness was kind of good for the day, and then it's kind of over. It's, it's really about a sustained life. But the life in the kingdom is not merely about sustenance. It's not just enough to get us through. The idea of the kingdom is an idea of abundance. So I'd like for us to think through this in terms of the Lord's Prayer. We sang it earlier. So uh, Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an amazing part of the prayer, really. Your, Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying for God's kingdom and we're praying for God's will to take place on earth as the kingdom is in heaven and as God's will is in heaven. So it kind of begs the question, is God's kingdom not here? Well, yes and no. It's coming. That's the good news, that the kingdom is coming. And is God's will not done here? Well, yes and no. In some ways it is, but in some ways this is our prayer, that God's will would be done here as it is in heaven. I mean, if you just look around in your life, or the life of your friends and family, would you say everything that happens is the will of God? I mean, are you comfortable with that? Do you not know anybody who suffered? I mean, what do you do with with, with children who get leukemia? What do you do with, uh, with a, a, a woman or a girl who gets sexually assaulted? Are you okay just saying, well, God knows, must be good. When, when Paul says in Romans that God can work all things for the good, that doesn't mean all things are good. Some things are bad. It means that God can take all things and make them good. So if we're praying for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, in some real sense, it's not yet here. And it's not yet happening. And so this is why we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The next, the next phrase is an interesting. one. Give to us today the daily bread or the, de- the bread of the presence is another translation. Or another way to translate it is even the bread for tomorrow. Give, for us, give to us today the bread for tomorrow. Give, give to us today the, the, the bread that you would give to us. Let us have it now. Sometimes we pray that prayer, and it sounds like Jesus is teaching us to only pray for the, the bare minimum that you need. Not even a whole roll just like a half a one. But that's not the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is a message of not just sustenance, but abundance. I came to give you life and life more abundantly. It's not just enough to get by on. It's enough to satisfy. Back to John 6, it says, when everyone ate, they ate until they were satisfied. And then they had all this stuff left over. So what does it mean to be satisfied? Well, it can mean a lot. You know, my dad used to say, um, uh, you know, some people could have a million dollars and still be poor. What he meant by that was that even, it doesn't matter really how much we have, if we still want more, we still kind of feel like we're experiencing lack. So abundance is not the same thing as excess. So excess just means that we just want more and more and we have more and more and we have all this stuff. But a satisfied life, which is what I'm trying to talk about, is not simply a, sustain, a sustained life. So a satisfied life is with abundance, not simply sustenance. But it's not this kind of a money-grabbing, uh, materialistic, I always consumeristic, I always need more right it's not this excess it's somewhere in between the two it's like the, the string on a violin right if the string is uh, not pulled tight enough it plays flat if it's not pulled tight at all it won't play anything <laughs> if it's pulled too tight it'll play sharp if it's way too tight tight it snaps right so somewhere in between simple sustenance and excess is a satisfied An abundant life. A satisfied life is a life of contentment. A life that sets at rest in God. A life that says we have what we need. And what we need is God. And God provides for our needs. In the very uh, substance of this world. And not just the substance of this world that we experience um, in physical things, but also the substance of this world that we experience in our souls, um, in our spirits. That we're not just kind of making it day by day, kind of drudging along, but we can be full of of joy and hope um, that the Lord can give that gives our life meaning, that we live not just to survive, uh, but we live to um, fulfill this kind of abundant life. I'm reminded a bit of this uh, piece of home decor that was in my grandmother's house. Um, Seems like it was on a plaque. There were a lot of plaques back in those days. And uh, it had some gold lettering on it. I don't remember the exact title to it, but i tried to find it and it said something similar to this money can buy a bed but it cannot buy sleep money can buy books but it can't buy brains money can buy food but it can't buy an appetite money can can buy finery but not beauty it can buy medicine but not health it can buy luxuries but not culture it can buy amusement but not happiness. Money can buy companions, but not friends. And it can buy flattery, but not respect. The life that I think Jesus is trying to give us is the, the second statement of all those things. It's, it's companionship. It's respect. It's fulfillment. And we have that in the table. The table that Jesus invites us to is one that celebrates uh, forgiveness, mercy, grace, and love. We're kind of all invited to it. And I'm going to uh, invite our servers now and come and serve you. I feel a bit like I'm at a um, cooking show. So <clears throat> what I have just below here, if you would, come on around, is we have for you today bread bread that represents life bread that can sustain us and more than sustain us bread that can satisfy and so as our servers come I'll ask you to take a piece of bread and if you, if you need to start nibbling I guess that's okay We'll call it your appetizer. But they're going to serve you. Um, if you would, um, if you need a gluten-free piece of bread, if you would just raise your hand and keep it raised for a second. And uh, we have someone coming to serve you. Rebecca, over here. Um. According to the Netflix uh, and, and someone over here for gluten free as well according to the Netflix documentary in Morocco the Moroccan word uh, for bread is the same as the word for life and in Morocco I didn't fact check this um, but again according to the Netflix documentary so it must be true <laughs> um, in Morocco you're not allowed to cut a piece of bread with a knife um, because it's too violent an act. Bread is such, such a powerful symbol in the culture. I mean, the very word means life. That you can break bread. You can tear it, right? And, and give it. But you can't cut it because the imagery is just simply too violent. And so the servers are coming now as well to kind of serve you, serve you the juice. In the uh, Eastern um, Orthodox tradition, when you take communion, uh, you'll come forward and uh, they'll often, um, the, the priests will kind of serve you communion from a spoon, um, kind of three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Spirit. But then the bread that's taken is often um, a more substantial piece. I really love that part of the tradition. Because the idea is that you simply um, you simply can't just take uh, a small piece. The idea is that the bread from communion is literally intended to... Um, sustain you uh, to sustain you in your day it's intended to be uh, satisfying I remember the first time I attended a service uh, it was a Vesper service at a monastery outside Boston uh, Orthodox monastery um, I didn't know it was a Friday night um, I was a little surprised that the service was two and a half hours long I uh, wasn't really prepared for that uh, I wasn't also prepared for as much marching as we did. We kind of processed from room to room a couple of times. That was interesting. And then the genuflexing, that was a little weird too. Um, you know, Protestant guy here. A little unusual. Uh, unfamiliar with that. But the hospitality that was shared, um, the way in which the monks kind of welcomed me in, um, the amount of bread <laughs> that they gave me to eat, I was like, oh, man, this, this kind of feels like home. The, in, in the documentary, again, you see this, um, this mother. It uh, doesn't quite say where she's from, so, um, but she's speaking Arabic, so I'm, I'm going to guess somewhere in the Middle East. And she's saying to her son, um, homemade bread is so much better than bread that you can buy at the store. And I'm pretty sure I heard my grandmother say that too. I grew up um, in a family where uh, making bread was, um, was part of my grandmother's tradition, right? We didn't kind of buy it at the store. And the smell of a fresh baked bread kind of brings to me certain uh, memories and experiences and feelings that... A story or words kind of can't do on their own and this is this is part of what i i want you to experience today that um the communion as we take it uh, is intended to be experienced in your body you're supposed to taste and smell and see and feel that the lord is good that there's these things that kind of remind you, that kind of mark in you your, your soul and your emotions and your memories, that, that this, this is God's gift. Um, and it's a gift that, that satisfies. There is in, also in the Jewish tradition um, uh, an item called a mezuzah. A mezuzah holds the Shema, a little bit of Deuteronomy, and it's placed, it's placed on the doorpost, um, and you kind of touch it or kiss it as you go in, and you touch it or kiss it as you go out, and that um, reminds you that we are the Lord's, and that we we live occur, according, and we not just according to, but we actually live by the word of the Lord, that it kind of gives us this. This life. Um, there was a, a Christian author who used the word mezuzah uh, in some of his writings as as a verb, um, suggesting that we should mezuzah our lives. What he means by that is that our lives need some kind of embodied uh, practice, something that we do, some smell that we have, some sight that we see, some experience that we have that um, teaches us, forms us and into the image of God and about God. So whether it's the candle lights or, or whether it's the bread and the juice or whether it's the songs that we sing. Um, I mean, did any of you have a grandparent whose house had a particular aroma? Some might say odor. <laughs> yeah, but even even if you thought it smelled, right? Instead of having a fragrance, there is this sense that if you had that, uh, if you smelled it again, all of a sudden these memories would just kind of kind of flood in on you. Um, little personal story on this one: When Angel and I were dating uh, back in the late 80s, that's when we started. Um, there was a popular new cassette uh, by Michael W. Smith. We were at a Christian college. That was, the, the cassette was called Eye to Eye, and the first song uh, was called Providence. And it, it's got kind of a folksy kind of start to it. But anyway, it was on the radio, Christian radio, a lot, and we played it all the time. And of course, we heard it a lot because it was the first song on the cassette, right because back in the day you kind of listened to things in order and you kinda, so you heard the first song over and over and over and over well we all or a lot of us know the what it feels like to fall in love do you know that that sensation it's just this kind of beautiful kind of overwhelming sense of joy now that sensation of falling in love is not the same sensation of being in love right so I love Angela. I say I love her as much or more today than ever, but it, it's a different sensation or feeling now, 27 years later, almost 26 years later, than, um, that, than that feeling of falling in love. And so it's, it's difficult to describe exactly what that feels like. But this baby, we'd been married about 10 years, we were moving house, and and uh, lo and behold, I ran into that cassette and I thought, oh look, there's that old cassette. And I, I, without thinking, I kind of plop it in the cassette player and I hit play and the first few notes of that song plays and the rush of falling in love just comes over me. I feel all those emotions, all the feels, right? And it's not the kind of thing that you can just manufacture, Like, it's a good feeling. Like, if I could just manufacture it right now, I think I might. But I can't. But the song did. Somehow the song brought back not just a memory, but something deeper and thicker and richer. And so when we take communion, this is no mere symbol. It might be a symbol, but it's much more than that. This is the holy bread. Our culture might like to take every basic thing, every good thing, and and make it into a commodity that can be traded. Uh, Our lives, our land, we're just kind of reduced to kind of being consumers. But the kingdom of God is moving in exactly the opposite direction. Taking that which is otherwise normal and making it holy. Taking the the everyday aspects of our life and saying, this can give life. Not just physical life, but also physical life. But it can give us life. Life. And we can be satisfied. So I don't expect you to be able to eat this whole roll. Uh, during our communion time now. Uh, but I, I, I do invite you to take it with you. And to, to eat it um, as we leave. And on your way to your, your home or your restaurant. And to remember that, that God is good. And that Christ has invited us. Invited us all to the table. On the night of... That Jesus was portrayed he took bread he blessed it he broke it and he gave it and he said this is my body which is broken for you, take and eat let's take and eat together and after the meal Jesus took a cup and he said this cup is a sign of the new covenant You are forgiven. You're accepted. And you're welcomed. Let's take and drink together. God in heaven, we love you. And we want to love you more. We're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And we pray that as we've taken these elements today, that they would not only nourish our bodies, that they would nourish our souls, that they might transform us into the image of your Son and our Savior, whose table we've come to. May we live a satisfied life, satisfied in you, and satisfied in all that you've provided in this wonderful, beautiful world. In Jesus' name.